Turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Our plan is to finish Matthew chapter 5 today. If you're visiting, we are working through the Gospel of Matthew, and right now we are in the Sermon on the Mount, the longest continual teaching from Jesus without interruption in the Bible, Matthew 5 through 7. And we are going to cover the last section of Matthew chapter 5. Please follow along with me. I'm going to start in verse 38. Matthew 5, verse 38, this is the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you... What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, no doubt these are some of the most famous words in the Sermon on the Mount. And God, I pray that you would give us clarity to better understand what is being taught here and how absolutely astonishing this teaching really is. God, I pray we would rightly understand what Jesus is communicating here, and I pray that you would give us the grace to do what we cannot do on our own, which is to begin to actually obey these astonishing commands in relationship to our enemies or those who truly dislike us or hate us or treat us with contempt God, I pray that you would give us the ability to love others as you have loved us in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm just going to begin by giving just sort of a one-sentence summary of the message for today. I think I can boil it down to this. Christian love, not our legal rights, should control our action toward those who wrong us. Christian love, not our legal rights, should control our actions toward those who wrong us. New Testament commentator Don Carson says, the way of the cross, not notions of right and wrong, is the Christian's principle of conduct and personal self-sacrifice should replace personal retaliation. Now, as you've probably noticed, as we've worked through the Sermon on the Mount, I keep doing this every week. I keep saying what Jesus does not mean as well as what Jesus does mean. And the reason I do that is because it's possible to read Jesus without the context in mind and to take it with a kind of literalism that Jesus did not intend. And And you say, how do you know that? How do you know Jesus didn't intend all these things to be taken absolutely in the extreme? I can tell you why. If you look back at the the section on lust, remember verse 29? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
Verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Do you remember, is Jesus using hyperbole at times in this sermon? Is He using overstatement dramatically to make a point? Yes, and this was true of wisdom literature in both the Old and New Testaments. If you read Proverbs, it's black and white. The righteous have this happen, the wicked have this happen, right? It's just black and white. In 1 John, it's very black and white. You've got this group here, and you've got this group here, and you've got the righteous and the wicked. It's just black and white. When you have, when you have kinds of wisdom literature, things are put in very stark uh, terms, and this is true throughout the Sermon on the Mount. So I want to begin the sermon by saying what I don't think Jesus is trying to say. Look, look back at verse verse. I'm losing my place here. Look at verse 39. Uh, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now just stop there. That statement taken in absolute terms is not what Jesus means in absolute terms. Do not, do not resist the one who is evil. The reason I can say that with great confidence is because Jesus' brother, also inspired by the Spirit, James, said, resist the devil. Same exact Greek word, resist. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Or how about this, Galatians 2? Do you remember that scene in Galatians 2.11 where Paul confronts Peter to his face in front of the whole church? And you know what the word is? It's the same Greek word. Don't resist anyone, Jesus says. Never resist anyone. What does Paul do? I resisted him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. So do you see how it's a little more complicated than just a black and white? What does Jesus mean here in his statement when he says, don't resist the evil person? Well, let's get to what Jesus does mean. Here's what I think he's saying. We should not resist evil unless doing so would be the more loving thing to do. We should not resist evil unless doing so, resisting the evil, would be the more loving thing to do. And you say, well, what, what, what exactly does that mean? Did Paul resist Peter publicly? Same word, resist. Did, he, did Paul do that publicly? Why? Was Paul just, you know, mean? <laughs> No, it was under inspiration he told the story. Why did Paul resist Peter to his face? The answer is, Peter was committing an error. Well, I won't go into the details right now. You can look it up in Galatians 2. Peter was committing an error by his actions that made it seem like you had to convert to Judaism and embrace all the ceremonial laws to be right with God. That's what it was looking like. And guess what? If no one confronts Peter, what happens to that false idea? It spreads like a disease through the church and destroys everything. So we, we don't resist the evil unless resisting the evil is the more loving thing to do. Do you, do you see what I'm saying here? And similarly speaking, uh, people have sometimes said, well, you know, what about a Christian who fights in the armed forces? You know, a Christian who, who, who is in some kind of just war and they, they have to take life for this purpose of war. Uh, I am not by any means a Christian pacifist. I do believe that there is such a thing as just war. If you are wrongly attacked and you're a Christian in the armed forces and you've got to defend your country against an evil attacker who's doing so without reason, it is not wrong to defend your country. In World War II, it was so easy to see the bad guys, right? So obvious. But uh, it was was very clear there. What is is happening, the resisting of evil with Hitler's Third Reich was the loving thing to do. To just let him go would not have been the loving thing to do. Let me read a quote from Professor Pastor Daniel Doriani, quote, war is terrible, but a defensive war can and should be an act of love, love for one's own people, even love for one's enemies. The defender uses the minimum of force necessary to drive out the invader. The defender even loves the foe as he defeats him, for a, no- a nation will not find spiritual blessing if it lives by theft and murder. 
It is good for the invaders themselves if they are humbled by defeat. The same is true of terrorists. They should be stopped for their own good as well as for everyone else's, but we may not harbor hatred for our enemies. Now, I'll bring up just, I know this is Old Testament law for Israel, but in Exodus 22, verses 2 and 3, here's an interesting passage which I think relates to the issue of self-defense. It says this, if a thief, Exodus 22, 2, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, uh, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt on him. What that means is, if you're in your home at night and a thief breaks into your home, and in the process of defending your family, using not excessive force, but whatever force is necessary to stop this thief who's in your house in the middle of the night, if in the process of doing that you kill that person, there is no blood guilt. There is no, there is no negative consequence because that is not wrong. If your children are about to be murdered and you stop the murderer and using least necessary force, you end up having to kill that person, which may not be what you desire at all. But if that is what is necessary, that is not the crime of murder. It is not the unlawful taking of human life. It is loving your children or whoever it is you're defending in that moment. I hope, I hope that's clear uh, in, in, biblically and just in, in general to understand that. So, let's, let's, let's get into our text a little more specifically. Look again at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Have any of you heard the phrase, the Latin phrase, lex talionis? Okay, this gets thrown around a lot. It simply is the term that was used for the law of retribution or retaliation. The lex means law, retalionis, retaliation. The law of retaliation. And this comes from the Old Testament. Did you know an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, life for a life comes from three places in the Old Testament. Let me read one of them. In fact, you, can, uh, you, you probably would want to turn there. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 19. While you're turning there, I'll, I'll say something else as you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 19. What was the purpose of this law in God's covenant with Israel? What was the purpose of the law of retaliation, the eye for an eye, the tooth for a tooth law? It may sound cruel to us today. We say, that seems awful. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that was in God's law? Oh my, how are we to think about this? Well, there there are at least two reasons why the Lord put that law into Israel's old covenant system. There are two reasons. Now listen carefully as you turn to Deuteronomy 19. Reason number one for eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, the punishment, eye for an eye, who's taking the eye? Who's taking the tooth in the Old Testament? The punishment is the job of the governing authorities who are supposed to be unbiased, just, not taking a bribe, not biased because they like this person, they don't like that person. Lady Justice, remember, has the blindfold. She's supposed to be unbiased. The punishment is the job of the governing authorities who should be unbiased and not, this is not done by the individual who was wronged. Think about this. This is not vigilante justice. This is not personal vengeance. The law is that the government is meant to decide eye for eye, tooth for tooth, not the individual. That's important. Dan Doriani writes this, in the public sphere, the law of retaliation is necessary justice in the public sphere. You can't just have people going around robbing each other with no consequence. What would that do to society? Murderers have no consequence. What happens? More murder. Uh, Theft, 
There's no consequence for theft. What happens? You're going to get guaranteed more theft, right? So there has to be some kind of a judicial action that's going to deal with that kind of behavior. And that's what eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth was meant to do. It was meant to curb those kinds of behaviors by inflicting a just punishment. So in the public sphere, like governmental, protecting the people, in the, in the public sphere, the law of retaliation is necessary justice. But in the private sphere, it can cover, this law could be used to cover a vindictive spirit, Society needs justice, but we do not need to exact justice with our own hands. As individuals, we can trust justice to God and the state and act in mercy. So number one, eye for an eye was not done by me, if you wrong me. It's done by, hopefully, just officials in the state, of, in Israel's government. Number two, why was this law in the Old Testament? Number two, the punishment was to be equal to the crime. Eye for an eye tooth for a tooth. You say, well, what does that mean? You do know what our tendency is. If someone punches you for no reason, or just, just think about in traffic how someone treats you, just someone drives erratically in front of you, you don't want to take their tooth. You want to take their life, okay? There, there's, a, there's a part of us when someone, when someone steals or takes the tooth, how do people want to respond? I mean, I'm sure you've seen videos online in the last however long. I don't even know what, what specific examples I'm thinking of. I just see videos regularly where someone pulls their phone out in public. When someone mistreats someone in a minor way, how does the person respond? Way more severe. And then how do they counter-respond? Way more severe. And suddenly life is in danger. Why? Because we tend to over-punish people if we are trying to do it ourselves, right? Maybe I'm the only person who has issues, okay, in the room. But I think we all do this. When we are wronged, we want to punish back aggressively, and we want to overpunish. God says, no, the eye will be accompanied by the eye tooth for tooth. And by the way, even that was probably not to be taken literalistically. It was probably dealing with uh, different kinds of financial uh, compensation, things like that. But the idea was the punishment and the crime have to meet. They have to match. Here's, uh, I know you're in Deuteronomy. Listen to Genesis 4. Do you remember Lamech, the first man to take multiple wives in the whole Bible? He was not a good man. Uh, Here's what Lamech says. Lamech said to his two wives, I have killed a man, you remember why? For wounding me. That's not the lex talionis, right? First of all, he's doing it himself, not the government. And number two, is he over-punishing? A guy wounded me, so what did I do? Lamech says, I killed him, and he's bragging about it. I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. The lex talionis says none of that. You don't do it yourself, and you make sure the punishment fits the crime. Deuteronomy 19, look at verse 16. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges. These are public officials who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently needs to be done fairly. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If you look at verse 21, your eyes shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. All right, you can turn back to Matthew chapter 5. Now, do you see how each week the Pharisees keep twisting the Old Testament, right? Have you noticed this trend? The Pharisees take the Old Testament, and what do they do? They bend it to the breaking point so that they can justify their own sin, right? This is what religious people in the negative sense always want to do because, look, left to ourselves, we can't measure up to God's standard. So what do we do? We qualify the standard away from what it is, and we think we can meet that changed standard. Jesus is saying, listen... 
I'm not talking about the government right now. I'm talking about you. When you are wronged, Pharisees were saying, I can use eye for eye for personal retribution. I can use tooth for tooth for my own personal vengeance and vendetta. I'm mad at you, so I'm going to make sure you get it from me. And Jesus says, not among my followers. Not among my followers. Let's read it here again. Verse 38 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. It's worth mentioning here, again, there's a use of hyperbole, overstatement. Jesus is not saying anytime anyone ever asks you for your clothes and your money, you've got to give everything away to them the second that they ask you for it. That's not what he's saying, because then you'd end up being as much of a problem for everyone as, as, as you just tried to solve. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is, let me quote Dan Doriani again, we must recognize the hyperbole. Jesus is not commanding us to give away everything until we are left cold and naked. He is commanding us not to devote ourselves to defending our honor and avenging all affronts. Let's get real here for a moment. People in our lives bother us. We are annoyed by how certain people treat us at work, at school, at home, whatever. Jesus even uses the word enemy here. Same word he uses later to say in Matthew, he says, some of your enemies will come from your own household. So this can happen in a home, amongst family members. You have an enemy. But, but listen, you know what it's like to be treated unfairly and unjustly. And you know the desire to fire back. And listen, we're good, respectable people. We don't fire back with our fists. We don't fire back with violence. We're not going to this. We're not going to take someone's tooth. Literally, most of us would, would say that. But you know how we fire back? You know how I fire back? It's with how I phrase my response. I choose words that are meant to like C.S. Lewis one time said, some words are chosen and they're no less effective than a punch in the jaw. Haven't you experienced or given those words? There, there's, there's a hundred ways you can respond by saying, no, thank you. There's a hundred ways you can say, I don't think that's a good idea. And yet, is it not true that we can heighten the rhetoric and make it more inflammatory or make it less inflammatory and more gracious simply by changing our vocabulary, by using just Synonyms that aren't as inflammatory, just use a different word. But we know which words are calculated in certain contexts to really be a, a verbal punch in the face, even though we can sort of judge, oh, I was just, oh, I didn't mean anything by it. But we know we did. It was a way of getting back. And that's the kind of stuff Jesus says, there is no place for that. If someone is trying to harm someone, yes, you can defend the innocent party. If someone is doing something illegal, it is not wrong to call the proper authorities. That's not what he's saying. He's saying something far more bothersome to our consciences, isn't he? He's saying, tomorrow morning, when you're tired and you roll into work, and you realize you forgot something, and someone says something to you that just, it just gets you, it just irks you, it, it bothers you, you've got to respond with the graciousness that Jesus shows us. You, you've got to respond, you've got to absorb the blow. That's one of the hardest things in the world. Absorb the blow and not show it in your response. Are you kidding me? This is not the way the world works. People find respectable ways to respond in a way that is hurtful. 
Listen, just, just examine in your own mind what are ways in which you have socially punished someone for annoying you. Subtle ways, ways that might not even make sense if you tried to explain it, but you know when you've done it because I've done it too. Moments where you say, the way I responded, the way I worded, the way I did what I did was intended to make them feel a bit of the burn of what happened here. And there's a little bitterness, right? And the more it happens, the more you want it to hit back in some way. And listen, sometimes in, in family relationships or extended family relationships, those can be even the more difficult because the obligation to love is so much stronger in these tight-knit communities of these families and these homes. And man, is it not true that bitterness can build up over time? I've been around people who will talk about what their sibling, this is a 50-year-old plus saying, what my sibling did when we were teenagers still bothers me. And there, you could feel the bitterness. Is that where we're at? Are we allowing things to just fester in our mind? When this person comes up in conversation, do you take a verbal blow at them, even if they're not present? Do you say something about them that just kind of raises some doubt about their character? It's not necessary, but you're mad at them, quietly mad at them. And so when their name comes up, when the three of you are talking, you just have to slip that slightly sliding jab at that person so everyone kind of knows that they've been annoying to you. I mean, this is the way the world works, and we cannot be like this. We, we cannot be like this. Jesus says, no, you absorb this. And how do you absorb it? You absorb it because of what Christ has absorbed from you. You absorb it because of the cross. You know, in, in this world, you hit, you hit back harder. You hit back harder again, and you get hit back again, harder and harder. It just keeps going like that. The cross is the one place in the world where all the sin came down on Jesus, and it didn't bounce back. He just took it. He absorbed it like a lamb going to the slaughter he was silent, and he just took our sin into the grave. And if we are focused on that truth, how can I treat you the way I think you deserve to be treated if I understand how Jesus has treated me? Let's look here at a couple things he mentions. To be slapped on the right cheek. Now think about it. To slap on the right cheek, someone's facing you, right? Someone's facing you. So if someone's facing you, their right cheek is on your left side, right? I was trying to explain this to our kids the other day. I don't think it, <laughs> I don't think it worked. But, so if, if they're facing you, their, their right cheek is on your, on your left side. And most people are right-handed, you know, then and now. And so if you're getting slapped on the right cheek, most commentators said this probably comes from the back of someone's right hand. How else would they hit your right cheek first? Probably they're going to use their right hand. Most commentators argue it's a backhanded slap on the face. You say, that sounds terrible. I'm sure it was for whoever experienced that. That's not, that's not a good thing. In fact, in this society, the backhanded slap on the face was considered one of the high insults. This is a shame and honor culture, a shame and honor society where the worst thing you can do is publicly insult someone or shame someone. And the idea of slapping someone across their face with the back of your hand was intolerable. And Jesus says, when they personally insult you, you don't go claim your rights. You don't fire back. You absorb the blow, and if they take another one, you absorb that one as well. This is not something that comes naturally to us. If anyone would sue you to take your tunic, verse 40, let them have your cloak as well. Now, the tunic was something worn right against your body, and the cloak was worn outside, uh, thicker around the outside of your body. And I'm, I'm not as expert on the clothing of the first century as I would like to be, but from what I understand, the, the, the uh, cloak was very important. Because when you slept, you slept in your cloak at night, normally. 
And there's even in the Old Testament some laws that say you cannot take someone's cloak overnight. Why? Because it's their sleeping bag, right? It's what they wrap themselves in at night to keep themselves warm. To take away their cloak was a serious deal. The Old Testament never actually allows for that. And Jesus says, if they sue you to take your tunic, why don't you throw the cloak in as well? I mean, just imagine the implications of what he is saying. Look at verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. You you probably know that this is a reference almost certainly to the Roman soldiers of Jesus' day. I had to look up the Greek word. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go. It's only used in one other context in the whole New Testament, which always makes me go, oh, okay, that's interesting. It's only used two other times. Used by Matthew and Mark, the same word for forces you. And you know, the two, Matthew and Mark use it in reference to the same thing. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they forced him, compelled him to carry the cross for Jesus. Does it sound like Roman soldiers are doing the forcing here? That's what this word was referring to. A Roman soldier would walk up to, say, an older Jewish man. The Roman soldier is the politically dominating factor here, keeping the Jewish people from their freedom. So they're hated by the Jewish people, generally speaking. They want the Romans out of here. The Roman soldier goes up to the older man and says, hey, I got this heavy luggage and equipment. I'm trying to haul it down to the next city. I want you to pick it up and I want you to carry it one mile. That was the legal requirement. They could force anybody, basically, to carry their belongings one mile. And so this older Jewish man would probably want to spit at the Roman soldier in this context. He's looking at his oppressor. He picks up the bags. He carries it one mile, and most people would probably be under their breath muttering curses against the Romans, saying, God, get them out of here. We hate them. And then drops the luggage down after a mile and says, good riddance, I'm out of here. And Jesus says, at the end of the first mile, the Roman soldier says, okay, thank you, you're done. Probably doesn't say thank you, just says, you're done. You're about to drop all the luggage, and Jesus says, ask the soldier, hey, would it, would it bother you if I took it one more mile? No one did that. No one, no one would have done that with a Roman soldier in the first century. And Jesus says, and, and by the way, it's not like at the end of two miles, you go, oh, finally, I can, I can check it off the list. No, the point is, our default is sacrificial love. That's our default. No matter what we think we deserve, he's an oppressor. I'm a Jewish person being oppressed by the Romans. Pick up the load, carry it the extra mile, and show a cheerfulness as you do it, I think would be implied in what Jesus is saying, not a begrudging attitude. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Again, not meaning we, like, think about this. If you know someone in front of you is going to use money in a way that is not going to be helpful for them, it's probably not a good idea to just give them the money. But if someone's asking you for a sandwich and you can get them a sandwich, is that possible? Can you do that? We we need to think about how we can be generous and not stingy with our money. But let's move into the next section here. Verse 43, let me reread this part. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends His reign on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, the Pharisees keep distorting the Old Testament. Their quote now is, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. There is no command in the Old Testament to hate your enemy. Where are they getting this from? 
You won't don't have to turn there, but in Leviticus 19, here's what the text says. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you see, in the context of neighbor, you shall love your neighbor, the context is sons of your own people. Do you see that? Don't bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, you can see how the argument was, see, we're just supposed to love people like us, like ourselves, not, not our enemies, not the people out there. But the problem is they didn't keep reading Leviticus 19, I guess, because if you drop down a few more verses, you get to Leviticus 19.34, and it says, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. And you see, that doesn't leave any wiggle room, because now he says, whoever's in front of you, you've got to love them like, you're, like yourself. You, whoever's, whoever you're talking to, you've got to love them as yourself. And Jesus tells the Good Samaritan in Luke 10 to make this very point, people from different tribes sacrificially, the Samaritan loves the Jewish man. But I don't want to go on a long rabbit trail with this, but I think it's worth mentioning. You may wonder, what about the imprecatory Psalms in the Old Testament where God is, where the psalmist calls for God to judge his enemies? I'll just give you one. We all love Psalm 139. I knit you together in my mother's womb. Someone's got that on the wall in their living room, right? It's great. We love that. I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. And then, then we suddenly stumble toward the end of that chapter. Because out of nowhere, the, the psalmist says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O Lord. Whoa. Like, this doesn't fit the cross stitch as well. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And then he says, search me, O God, see if there's any grievous way within me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And you go, whoa, what just happened for those three verses all of a sudden in that chapter? Well, no doubt, I think, the Pharisees had taken some of the imprecatory Psalms and brought them together and said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what the Old Testament teaches. Well, it's not quite that simple. At the end of the Bible, I think someone's mentioned this in years past here, but the word hallelujah is normally in the Old Testament, right? You see, Yah is short for Yahweh, hallelujah, Yahweh means praise Yahweh. The word hallelujah only appears, I think, three or four times in the whole New Testament, and they all appear in the same chapter. And if you're not familiar with this, you may be surprised where the word hallelujah shows up in your Bible. Let me just read this real quick. After God has judged His enemies in Revelation 18, Revelation 19 starts, and there's four, I think, four hallelujahs, and listen to them. After the judgment of God's enemies... I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude in heaven. So there's no sin going on here, right? They're in heaven. Crying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to God for, why are we praising Him? His judgments are true and just, for He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Wow. The only time the word hallelujah is used in the New Testament, it's in reference to God judging His enemies, throwing them into the lake of fire. Here's the point. There is a kind of hatred that is holy in the Bible. Now, don't just… If someone just tweets that or snippets that, I'm in trouble. Okay, hey, listen carefully. What I mean is, at the end of the day, when someone dies in absolute rebellion against God and we enter into eternity, there will be a true thankfulness that God's justice is being poured out on those who have died in absolute unrepentant rebellion. There will be. Just like the song of Moses after the Egyptians drowned in the Red Sea, they said, praise God for the horse and his rider have drowned in the midst of the sea. Our God is a God of war. Who is like him? That is the kind of hatred in the sense of 
satisfaction that God is pouring out His justice on those who truly deserve it at the end. That, I believe, is biblical, but the Pharisees had turned it into, I can hate whoever displeases me in this life right now. And that's not what those verses are about. I hope that makes sense. We got to move on. There's a lot of questions probably from that, but we're just going to keep moving. Okay, Uh, next little section here. Look with me back at verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends His rain on the just and on the unjust. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Don't let your love for others be dictated by how you think they're treating you. Let your love for others, including your enemies, be dictated by how God is treating His enemies every day in this world. And you know how God treats His enemies? The sun right now shining over Athens at this moment is shining on believers and unbelievers. The air that we're breathing is being breathed in and out by believers and unbelievers. There are billions of people today who are going to eat meals. Many of them do not believe in Jesus, but has God fed them today? Every time God is just every day, He pours out His common grace lavishly on the righteous and the wicked, those who know Him and those who don't. And Jesus says, if you want to be a son of God that is reflecting God's character, do the same. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Think about praying for your enemies for a moment. That's, that's very hard to do, but I, I will say, if you find that you are able to pray for people who really bother you, I mean, people who you find it very hard to be truly kind to and to speak well of, you could probably think of some people in your life right now. People just hard for you to love, does not come easily. Have you, and maybe you have, have you found that if you deliberately choose to pray for their spiritual well-being, pray that they, that they know the Lord if they don't, or know Him better if they do, if, if you found that if you pray for them truly with conviction over a period of days and weeks, does it begin to change your attitude toward them when you see them? I think it's impossible, I think, to pray for someone for three weeks every day and then see them and just be full of all the bitterness and all those feelings. I mean, perhaps, but I think prayer is going to be a major antidote to our own hard-heartedness towards other people. All right, I'm going to move towards a close here. I'm going to reread verses 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? I think those verses are some of the most potentially life-changing commands you can possibly see. Because Jesus is saying, our love for the other person is not grounded in how they are treating me. How do we get to that point where we can love people like that? Uh, So I looked up a couple things. That word, you know, slapped that we mentioned a minute ago, it's only used, as far as I could tell, it's only used one other time in the whole New Testament, that word slapped. And it occurs when it happens to Jesus. It's in Matthew. Listen to this. 
Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him. Same word. Saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Jesus said, love your enemies. That same Greek word for enemies is used in this verse. Listen. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. If you really want to show the gospel to a non-believer in your life, the moments when they treat you the worst are your best shot at evangelism. The moment where even their conscience says, yeah, probably should have done that. I would understand if they responded with some anger. If you respond against their expectations when they have treated you badly, that is one of your best opportunities to actually show them Jesus' love. Because Christ-like love is the love that says, no matter how much you've been my enemy, I will die to make you my friend. No matter what you've thrown at me, I will absorb it into the grave and I will come out and hold nothing against you if you will simply turn and trust in me. And if that's what is true of us, if we have been saved by that kind of Christ, how can we not show the same kind of love and patience and compassion to others that Christ himself has shown to us? I'll close with this brief story. There's a guy named Mez McConnell, who's an interesting character if you know who that is. Uh, Found out about him through uh, Mark Dever and his people. He, he, let, let me just tell you briefly Mar, uh, Mez McConnell's crazy conversion story. He said, his grandmother was a prostitute. His grandfather committed suicide. His mom ran off with the best man at her wedding. Just think about that for a second. Her father was an alcoholic. His father was an alcoholic gambling addict. He was abandoned in a box on the street at age two. He moved to upwards of 30 to 40 institutions, children's homes, and foster parent homes over the course of the next 15 or so years. 30 to 40 different places he moved as an orphan. He got involved in drugs at age 12. At 16, he was living full-time on the streets. He was first presented with the gospel at a community center at age 19 by some Christian men who came into the area to play soccer, apparently with these kids. So Christian men show up playing soccer. They invite these troubled kids in to play soccer. And what happens? They start talking about Jesus. And Mez does not like what he hears because they talk about sin and they talk about God's wrath. And he said, you know why I'm so messed up? Because of my background. If you had lived the life I lived, you'd be as messed up as I am. He blamed all of his sin on his past, which you can understand the temptation for him to do that. Well, at 21, he was in a maximum security prison with a serious drug problem, 21 years old. And then they let him out on parole. These are his exact words. Later in prison, these same men, so when he's still in prison, these same men, the soccer players, came to visit me. On release while on parole, one of these Christian men whose face I used to spit in gave me a place to live and gave me a home I could call my own. I was later converted, not long after, while reading Matthew Henry's commentary. Wow. And he said this, I realized very quickly, particularly in the book of Romans, that I had to take responsibility for my own sinful lifestyle and not blame it on my poor childhood and others around me. And so for the first time, I began to believe 
in the gospel of Jesus. Since then, he started a church planting organization, as best I can tell. They planted multiple churches in the slums of Brazil and Scotland, and he's trying to plant churches in the hardest places to get to. You can pretty much imagine, how did he get converted? Horrific background, drug problem, all over the place, different prisons and things like that. What happened? God shared the gospel with them. He spit in their face, and guess what? They continued to love him anyway. When he gets out on parole, what happens next? The guy he spit in the face of gives him a place to live. Gives him a Matthew Henry commentary. I'm assuming he gave it to him. He starts reading Matthew Henry in the Bible. He's converted, starts reading the book of Romans, sees his sin as the problem, and starts following Christ and planting churches. How did it all happen? The turning point was the guy whose face I used to spit in gave me a place to live. That's what Jesus is talking about in this passage. And that's what we need to become more like by His grace. Let's bow our heads together. Lord Jesus, You were equal with Your Father for all of eternity in heaven and with the Holy Spirit, and You chose because of Your love for sinful people, rebels like all of us, You chose to step off Your throne where You were worshipped by countless millions of angels, and You chose to be born and placed in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. You lived an almost invisible life for the first 30 years, working a blue-collar job with your father. Three years of ministry and yet hated by the majority of people who truly got to know you. You're betrayed by one of your own 12 with a kiss. You were then taken before the Roman soldiers and they literally spit in your face as they mocked you, as they hit you in the head with a reed as they put something over your eyes and said, prophesy, who hit you? And they began to slap you in the face and to punch you. The very face before whom earth and sky will flee away upon your return was the face that they spit on and slapped and punched and treated with great indignity. Lord Jesus, thank you that you gave us an unimaginable model of what you're calling us to. The commandment you give us in this text is the commandment you yourself kept. You turned the other cheek. You were silent before your accusers. You took the scourging on the back, the tremendous loss of blood and the nails through the wrists, through the feet, hanging for six endless hours on the cross while your enemies sat at the bottom and mocked you. And what did you say? You said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is unimaginable mercy, an unimaginable God that we worship. What other God is like this, who when spit upon and mocked, responds with self-sacrifice and grace and forgiveness? You alone, O Lord, are the one true God and the truly gracious, forgiving God, who opens His arms to any who will turn in this very moment and trust in this gospel and will turn away from sin. But I, I pray for anyone right now who's, who's listening to this, if they do not know you in a saving way, maybe they've heard about you for years, but they have not truly repented and trusted in Christ and in your word. God, I would ask that by your spirit, even right now in this moment, that you would grant repentance that you would grant real grief and hatred of sin, 
eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. And I pray as we sing, God, that eyes would be opened to your glory and that we would begin to imitate the love you have shown us through your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.